0: good evening. It's wonderful to see all of you tonight. I'm Carla Hayden, and welcome to a very special edition of our Writer's Live series. We're very honored to have tonight a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner and the reigning chronicler of World War II, historian and journalist, Mr. Rick Atkinson. This is says applause. He is the acclaimed author of the award-winning and well-acclaimed series of books, The Liberation Trilogy, and tonight we're looking forward to hear him talking about his third installment in that series, The Guns at Last Light. The reviews have been extraordinary, and based on the crowd here on this rainy night in Baltimore, this is definitely a must-read book for not only history buffs, for everyone. And I just mentioned to Mr. Atkinson that it's not often, but it's a librarian's dream to have an author who is like the rock star of historians. We have been getting so many calls and everything about him coming here tonight and we're like, he's a historian, this is great. So thank you Mr. Atkinson for making history come alive and people really wanting to read your book, thank you. And thank all of you who attend these author events. Tonight wouldn't have been possible without one of our sponsors, One main financial, thank you very much. And also, we just wanted to let you know that our partner in crime, the Ivy Bookstore, is here tonight and will be selling books, and Mr. Atkinson will be signing books right afterwards, so thank you. And of course, we have more events. we will be just great to see you, and so prattlibrary.org, and also on our library app. We're really hip now. So, to announce... And to introduce our special guest tonight is a member of the Pratt Library's Board of Trustees and Directors and the former Board Chairman. But also, he pulled rank. He pulled rank tonight because he is one of the biggest Rick Atkinson fans that you could ever know. He told us about him years ago, months ago. He was the Person who said, "You've got to get him. You've got to get him." And so, please welcome Mr. Robert Hillman.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hayden, and good evening, everyone. Before I introduce uh, Rick Atkinson, I know there are a few uh, World War II veterans here, and um, I wonder if we could recognize them. Would they please stand? Thank you for your service to our country. Rick Atkinson started a month-long book tour, which I believe finishes tonight at the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And if you have more than a passing interest in World War II history, which I assume you do because you're here tonight, I would suggest two things for your bucket list. One. Go to New Orleans to that great museum. It is terrific. And secondly, of course, read Rick Atkinson's Liberation Trilogy. The Liberation Trilogy represents simply some of the finest writing ever done on the subject of World War II. The first book of the trilogy, published in 2002, An Army at Dawn, explores the North African campaign and the Allies tough lessons there. It won a Pulitzer Prize for history. The second book, The Day of Battle, published in 2007, covers the Allies advance through Sicily and Italy which was supposed to be the soft underbelly of, um, of Europe anything but. And In fact, Mr. Bill Everett, who is here, is on page 134 of that book. (laughs) I just found that out. Now the last in the trilogy, The Guns at Last Light, traces and brings to life the climactic battle for Western Europe, from Normandy to V-Day and the final destruction of the Reich. These are not merely tales of triumph, but gripping narratives rooted in the sight and sounds of battle every day. Atkinson tells the story from the perspective of participants at every level, from presidents and generals to highly targeted second lieutenants just out of college to terrified teenage riflemen. From the first paragraph of the prologue, the reader is captivated both by the fascinating detail of an army at war and the sweeping view of Allied and German strategy. One passage illustrates his ability to tell everyone's story. As American soldiers prepared to storm the deadly beaches of Normandy, Atkinson tells us, Brigadier General Norman Dakota, who would be the senior officer at Omaha Beach, told officers you're going to find confusion. The landing craft aren't going in on schedule, and people are going to be landed in the wrong place. Some won't be landed at all. We must improvise, carry on, not lose our heads, nor must we add to the confusion. He contrasts that with what a tank commander said to his crew. The government paid $5 billion for this hour. Get the hell in there and start fighting. Born in Munich, Rick Atkinson is the son of a U.S. Army officer and grew up on military posts across America and abroad. He earned degrees in English at East Carolina University and the University of Chicago. Before turning his full attention to history, he was a highly regarded reporter for the Kansas City Times and the Washington Post and won two Pulitzer's for journalism in addition to the one for history. And he has come to know and understand the modern American soldier as a result of reporting tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Among his other highly regarded books, published long before the Liberation Trilogy, which he worked on, he told me tonight, for 15 years, are The Long Gray Line, The American Journey of West Point's Class of 1966, tracing the lives of soldiers who faced Vietnam and its aftermath and Crusade, the untold story of the Persian Gulf War. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Guns at Last Light has received incredible reviews. I'm sure you read them and that's why you're here tonight. The New York Times review calls it a tapestry of fabulous richness and complexity. While the Boston Globe says, breathtaking and unforgettable, Atkinson provides us with especially poignant descriptions in a blaze of writing and research that matches the drama and significance of the moment, all without peer in modern history. Rick is now working on a trilogy about the American Revolutionary War, I Can't Wait. It is my great pleasure and privilege to introduce to Baltimore and to the Pratt Rick Atkinson.
2: Well, thank you for that, and thank you all so much for being here tonight in this wonderful hall and this great library. Uh, When my wife uh, Jane and I moved to Washington, D.C. uh, more than 30 years ago, I was a newspaper reporter and she was a new dentist and uh, she came here to do her residency at the University of Maryland and she eventually came back and was the Dean of Clinics at the University of Maryland uh, Dental School. Uh, So we feel like we know the city a bit. We were Orioles fans in those days and we still are when we root for the American League. And it's really great to be in one of the most wonderful libraries in the country. I've heard of the Pratt for a long time and I'm really pleased to be speaking here tonight. Jack London said that a writer ought not wait for inspiration to come knocking on the door, but instead should go looking for it with a club. And 15 years ago, I took my club and what I found, what inspired me was the Second World War. The war lasted 2,174 days and by the end it was the greatest catastrophe in human history, 60 million dead. That's 27,600 dead every day for six years or 1,150 dead an hour. If you were a German boy born between 1915 and 1924, The odds were one in three that by 1945, you would be dead. The Soviet Union had 190 million people when the war began, and by the end of the war, 14% of them were dead. 60 million dead in six years is a death every three seconds. One, two, three. One, two, three. That's World War II. The writer Kingsley Amos once declared that he only wanted to read books that begin, a shot rang out. My approach to writing about World War II has been to tell the story of the Western allies in the liberation of Europe, and in that tale, many, many shots ring out. It's really a triptych telling that story, three panels that can be appreciated independently but ultimately come together to form a coherent whole. And the first panel for me, the first volume, begins where the liberation of Europe begins, not in Europe but in North Africa with the invasion by British and American soldiers on November 8, 1942 of Morocco and Algeria and then the subsequent seven-month campaign across North Africa to the final expulsion of German and Italian soldiers from Tunisia in May of 1943. And the second panel or volume for me then follows those armies north across the Mediterranean to the invasion of Sicily on July 10, 1943, and then across the Straits of Messina into southern Italy to places like Salerno, the Volturno River, the Rapido River, Cassino, Anzio, and finally the liberation of Rome on June 4, 1944. And this third and final volume begins on May 15, 1944, It opens at St. Paul's School on Hammersmith Road in London where Eisenhower, George Patton, Omar Bradley, Bernard Montgomery, Winston Churchill, King George VI, and several dozen of the most senior commanders for the Western Allies have come together to review for a last time the plan called Overlord, the invasion of Normandy, which is to take place three weeks later. They gathered in an auditorium called the Model Room, and they sat on hard wooden benches normally reserved for schoolboys. The poet John Milton, among other English luminaries, had gone to St. Paul's. And even though it was the middle of May, it was cold as a meat locker in the Model Room, and the generals and admirals sat with their overcoats on. On the cockpit at the base of this auditorium was an immense map made of plaster of Paris, and it showed that section of France where the River Seine spills into the Atlantic. And there was a British brigadier wearing no-skid socks, and as they talked about the plan that would unfold on what would become the most famous battlefield in the world in three weeks, he used a pointer, and he would point out geographic locations as they came up. The beaches, for example. Utah, Omaha, gold, Juneau, sword. And towns that would soon become famous, St. Lo, Cannes, Cherbourg, and over on the edge of the map, Paris. Then, for the next 12 chapters, the action on spools at these places and others Mortain, Falaise, Paris, the Hurtgen Forest, Nijmegen. Arnhem, the Battle of the Bulge, the crossing of the Rhine, the encirclement of the Ruhr, and the final drive across the Elbe to the defeat of Germany on V.E. Day, May 8, 1945, Victory in Europe Day. And as in the first two volumes, we periodically move from a tactical foxhole view up on high where we can see operational and strategic issues and we periodically go to the other side of the hill to see what the Germans are up to. I also spend a lot of time looking at the invasion of Southern France, which took place on August 15, 1944, and is a very important part of the liberation of Europe about which even well-read Americans often know very little about. A combined Franco-American army, a French army and an American army, came ashore near Saint-Tropez, a nice place to invade. And as the French captured the ports at Marseille and Toulon, the Americans then began to push up the Rhône River, and together they turned right at Lyon. They pushed through the Vosges Mountains in the early winter of 1944-45, and they liberated Strasbourg in late November of 1944 on the Rhine River, 4 months before any of those other armies pushing eastward from Normandy, reached the Rhine. And the cast of characters in that invasion of southern France are fantastic, and they include American generals who've largely slipped into oblivion for most Americans, men like Jacob Devers and Alexander Patch, and the French First Army commander, a general named Jean de de Tassigny, who is beyond the power of any novelist to invent. DeLotte would show up late at night. One of his admirers called him an animal of action. And he would show up late at night in bivouacs where his soldiers were sleeping. And he would roar out, waking them up, what have you done for France? He's that kind of guy. As you may suspect, the liberation of Europe is not precisely an untold story. Amazon.com lists 60,000 World War II hardcover titles. So how do you tell that story so that you and you and you are hearing it as if for the first time? Part of it is voice, of course, and narrative coherence, but a good part of it must be archival spade work. And when it comes to the Second World War, an archive rat like me can live large... The U.S. Army records alone for the Second World War weigh 17,000 tons. It's a lot of paper. And as with all great events in American history, World War II is bottomless. There's more to discover. There will always be more to discover. So, for example, I was at the National Archives in College Park, not far from where I live in Washington, and I came across a document one day And it indicated thinking that was going on before the invasion of Normandy. And there was a recognition that coming across the beaches by sea was going to be very hazardous because there were going to be a lot of Germans protecting those beaches. And there was recognition that coming by air, by parachute or by glider was also going to be very hazardous because there were going to be a lot of Germans protecting the drop zones. What are your alternatives? Well, someone proposed, how about digging a tunnel under the English Channel? And so there was a study done, and that's the document that I found. And the officers who did the study reported back, they were engineers, and engineers say always, yes, sir, we can do this. It will take 15,000 miners one year to excavate 50,000 tons of spoil. But we can do this. What they couldn't figure out. What they could never finesse was what happened when that first miner popped his head out of the hole in France and the entire German Seventh Army was waiting for him. (laughs) There was a whole array of issues to be dealt with as they planned the invasion of Normandy. They had their own acronym, PINWI, Problems of the Invasion of Northwest Europe. For example, there was anxiety that the Germans would fly over Britain and drop rats infected with bubonic plague. And so there were bounties offered on rat carcasses to test for plague. There was anxiety that the Germans would fly over London and drop what were called radioactive agents to try to disrupt the preparation for what the Germans knew was going to be an invasion somewhere, sometime. And so there were Geiger counters hidden all over in London to test for radioactivity. The Allies stockpiled 160,000 tons of chemical munitions. And in the National Archives, I found two plans that had been approved by Eisenhower for chemical warfare, should it come to that in Normandy, as it certainly had in France in World War I. The first plan was predicated on caring about minimizing French civilian casualties. The second plan, not so much. And had there been chemical warfare in Normandy, there would have been tens of thousands of French civilian casualties. U.S. Army draftee standards, and it's really great to see World War II veterans here, those draftee standards were lowered progressively as the war went on to. Subsequently, admit what were called physically imperfect men. I'm sure we have no examples of them here tonight. So, for example, when the American War began in earnest in 1942, to be drafted, you had to have at least 12 of your natural 32 teeth. By 1944, how many teeth did you have to have to be drafted? Zero. And that's because the United States Army and the United States Navy together drafted one-third of all the dentists in the United States. And collectively, they pulled 15 million teeth, they filled 68 million more, and they made 2.5 million sets of dentures, all to allow those draftees to be able to masticate the Army ration. I know that sounds like an obscene act, but that was the standard. Venereal disease had kept men out of uniform early in the war, but by 1944, the Army was drafting 12,000 venereal disease patients a month, most of them syphilitic. How could they do that? Penicillin. That extraordinary discovery by British scientists in the 1920s had been converted into an industrial project by the British and the Americans so that a substance that had been made by the Gram was soon made by the kilogram and eventually by the ton. You could be drafted by late in the war if you had 2,400 vision, so long as it was correctable to 2,040 in one eye. The old joke had come true that the army no longer examined eyes, it just counted them. And in fact, you could be drafted if you were blind in one eye if you were deaf in one ear, if you were missing both external ears. You could be drafted if you were missing a thumb or three fingers on one hand, including your trigger finger. Why these extreme measures to fill the ranks? It was because of the crying need for infantrymen and especially riflemen. Even in a country of 130 million, we were running out. The Brits did run out. The war remained hard and brutal to the very end. In April 1945, the last full month of the war in Europe, more than 10,000 American soldiers were killed in action in Germany. That's almost as many as had been killed in June 1944, the month of invasion. It was awful almost to the last gunshot. So desperate was the American Army for infantrymen that the High Command in December 1944 approved a measure that had been unthinkable just a few months earlier. They agreed to allow black soldiers into otherwise lily-white units. Fifty-three colored platoons were integrated into 11 otherwise white divisions. Many of those African-American soldiers surrendered sergeant stripes that they had earned as cooks and drivers and laborers for the privilege of fighting as infantry privates. There are many other surprises and discoveries. I found, for example, at the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library a remarkable document written by the Atlanta Funeral Home Director who had been summoned on the afternoon of April 12, 1945, to take care of President Roosevelt's body. He had died in Warm Springs, Georgia that day. And he describes in clinical detail, first of all, arriving at the cottage late in the evening, waiting for Eleanor, the first lady who had also been summoned, to emerge from the cottage. And he describes how she comes out after saying goodbye to her husband, dry-eyed, And then he describes how he injected six bottles of embalming fluid into the president's veins and arteries and otherwise prepared him for eternity. And the last thing that he did was to summon the presidential valet, Arthur Prettyman, and he handed him a comb and asked him to comb the president's hair just so. John Updike once said that World War II was the 20th century's central myth. He called it a tale of Troy, whose angles are infinite and whose central figures never cease to amaze us with their size, their theatricality, their sweep. Well, they are theatrical. I believe the narrative historian's true calling is to bring back the dead. And I have tried to do that not only with the large figures you know about, Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, but others who are less well-known or in some cases have slipped into obscurity completely, men like the generals Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. and Lucian Truscott, Jr. Even amid the clash of army groups, millions of men fighting, my eye is always drawn to the small particular tragedy that illuminates the larger catastrophe. For example, I tell the tale of the death of General Alexander Patch's son, Mac. Mac Patch was a young infantry captain. He'd been badly wounded in Normandy. And as he was recuperating, he was shifted under his father's command to southern France. And the letters between General Patch and his wife, Max's mother, Julia, are in the archive at West Point. And you can see Julia asking General Patch to be sure that he does not allow their only child to go back into combat too quickly. And then you can see the letters from General Patch to Julia trying to explain how he has been killed almost the day he returned to combat in October 1944. It is simply heartbreaking. And General Patch writes to Julia, I cannot and must not allow myself to dwell upon our irreparable loss. As I write, the tears are falling from my eyes. Providence decrees, and we must obey. Providence decrees, and we must obey. How many millions of families during World War II had similar sentiments? I tell the story of the suicide of Rear Admiral Don P. Moon. He'd been the senior naval commander at Utah Beach. And shortly before he was to take on a role of similar responsibility in the invasion of southern France, blew his brains out in the cabin of his flagship in Naples Harbor. The stress had just unhinged him. And the suicide note that he wrote to his wife and his four children is haunting. Part of it read, what am I doing to you, my wife and dear children? I'm sick, so sick. We've last seen Lieutenant Colonel John K. Waters, a very fine armor officer who happens to be George Patton's son-in-law, we've last seen Colonel Waters being hustled off to a German prison camp after he's captured on the first day of the debacle known as the Battle of Kasserine Pass in February 1943 in Tunisia. And in the guns at last light, we're reunited with Colonel Waters because of Patton's harebrained scheme to send a rescue force far behind German lines to the small Bavarian town of Homelburg in an effort to liberate Colonel Waters, whom Patton suspects, correctly as it turns out, is imprisoned there. The raid is a disaster. All of the raiders are killed or captured. Waters is shot in the hip and severely wounded. And I was given by Colonel Waters' son the daily log and diary that he kept while he was in prison for two years. He kept a meticulous chart of prison rations, for example, showing the daily allotments that included, for example, 35.7 grams of meat per man per day. That's a little more than an ounce. Plus 318 grams of barley bread, 200 grams of cabbage, and 143 grams of cow turnips. Waters would peel the labels off of Red Cross relief food cans and paste them into his log as if to extract a few final calories from the memories, labels like Topo peanut butter and Kroger's fruitcake. I mentioned that the United States had 130 million people during World War II. We put 16.1 million into uniform. And of those, about 1.3 million are still alive, a goodly number here, I'm happy to say. They're leaving us at the rate of about 800 a day. Sometime next year, in late 2014, the number of surviving American veterans of World War II will drop below 1 million. And 10 years later, in 2024, the number will drop below 100,000. And in 2036, the last year for which government demographers have calculated survival rates, there will be fewer than 400 American survivors of World War II. That's less than half the size of an infantry battalion. This country suffered less than any of the other major combatants during World War II. We emerged not only with our industrial base intact, but also thriving. We emerged with two-thirds of the world's gold supply, with plentiful energy, and with a great sense of optimism about the future. But 400,000 Americans died during the war, and of those, 291,000 were killed in action. And of those killed in action, about half died in Europe in that last 11 months of the war. In 1947, the next of kin of all those who had died and been buried overseas, and that included almost everyone who had died in the Pacific or the Atlantic theaters, those next of kin were sent quartermaster form number 345, and they were given a one-time opportunity to decide whether to repatriate their sons, to bring them home, and they were mostly sons, or to leave them for burial overseas in one of about two dozen American Battle Monuments Commission cemeteries. A little more than 60 percent chose to bring them home and a little less than 40 percent chose to leave them overseas for burial with their comrades. Regardless of the final disposition, the cost of opening every grave and moving those bodies to the final resting place was $564.50 each. That's something only a rich, victorious country could afford. Every grave was opened by hand, and the remains were sprinkled with an embalming compound of formaldehyde, aluminum chloride, wood powder, clay, and plaster of Paris. And the remains were then lifted and placed into a steel casket with a satin pillow labor strikes in the United States had caused a shortage of casket steel, and there was also a shortage of licensed embalmers. And the dead accumulated in places like Cardiff and Cherbourg and elsewhere. Finally, the SS Joseph V. Connolly, the first of 21 ghost ships from Europe and the Pacific, sailed from Antwerp with more than 5,000 soldiers in her hold. On October 27, 1947, she birthed in New York Harbor and stevedores winched soldiers from her hold two by two in specially designed slings. And a great diaspora began as these soldiers and those that followed traveled across the country mostly by train for burial in their hometowns or in national cemeteries. That's how the dead came home. But what of their belongings? What of the things they carried? Long before the dead came home, these things had been coming home. In a large warehouse on Hardesty Avenue in Kansas City, The Effects Bureau, as it was called, had begun in February 1942 as a small quartermaster operation with fewer than a dozen employees. By 1945, there were more than 1,000 people working there, and they were handling 60,000 shipments a month, the effects of the dead from six continents. Hour after hour, day after day, shipping containers were unloaded from Rail box cars that pulled up to the siding next to that warehouse on Hardesty Avenue, and the containers were hoisted by elevator to the tenth floor, and they then traveled by assembly line conveyor belt down to the seventh floor, and all along the line, inspectors palled through the remains of the effects, and they would extract ammunition. letters from a girlfriend you didn't want a grieving widow to see. Workers used grinding stones and dentist drills to remove corrosion from web gear and other equipment, and laundresses scrubbed and scrubbed, trying to get the bloodstains out of uniforms. A detailed inventory was pinned to each repacked container, and it was stacked in a series of warehouses, and all the while in a large adjacent room, Banks of typists were banging out letters, 70,000 letters a month by the summer of 1945. And the gist of those letters was this. Dear sir, dear madam, we have your dead son's stuff. Where should we send it? Well, over the years, effects bureau inspectors found many things. They found tapestries, enemy swords, a German machine gun, an Italian accordion, walrus tusks, a shrunken head, a tobacco sack full of diamonds. Among the thousands of diaries that accumulated in Kansas City was a small notebook that had, re- that had belonged to Lieutenant Herschel G. Horton. He was 29. He was from Aurora, Illinois, shot in the right leg and hip during a firefight with the Japanese on New Guinea. Horton had dragged himself from the kill sack into a grass shanty, and in the several days that it took for him to die, he wrote a final letter home to his family. It began, My dear, sweet father, mother, and sister, I lay here in this terrible place, Wondering not why God has forsaken me, but why he is making me suffer. The first duty for all of us is to remember. Our current poet laureate, Natasha Trethewey, ends her poem, Pilgrimage, which is about a visit to Vicksburg with these lines. In my dream... The ghost of history lies down beside me, rolls over, pins me beneath a heavy arm. My ambition as the author of this trilogy is for you, too, to feel that heavy arm, to feel the palpable presence of those who risked everything and, in some cases, gave everything for us. Thank you so much for being here this evening. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So we'll take questions, comments, brickbats. And we have microphones, so if you can wait till a microphone gets to you, and we'll go from there. Yes, sir.
1: An expert on world S- Speak
2: right into it, sir, so they can hear you. I wonder whether or not you thought, and I'm sure you have, as to whether or not the strategy we used to defeat Nazi Germany was the, was the best one, in retrospect. I mean, uh, have you thought about whether or not the strategy of first going to North Africa and then through the boot uh, was the most effective way to defeat the Nazis, especially since they had an overextended supply line, which the Battle of Stalingrad and the Battle over Britain clearly showed the limits of what the Nazis were able to do. Thank you for that. Could you hear him in the back? Yes, good. Have I thought about it? Yeah, I've been thinking about it for 15 years. And it's a very good question, and it's been debated for 70 years. My feeling is, why do we go to North Africa? We go to North Africa despite the advice of George C. Marshall, the chief of staff of the United States Army, and all of the senior military leaders of the United States who recommend that we not go to North Africa, that instead we stage in England, we cross the English Channel, and we head for Berlin. And despite that advice from Marshall and others, Franklin Roosevelt rejects the advice, and he sides with the British, and particularly with Prime Minister Churchill, And Churchill is making this argument. The gist of it is, look, the Germans are much tougher than you think they are. They have expelled us from the continent repeatedly. You have a green army. You have green commanders at all levels. It would be much better to begin attacking the Axis Empire on the periphery. And he proposes North Africa in part because there are no Germans there. And it's true when we land in North Africa, and finally Roosevelt, this argument goes on through the spring of 1942, and Roosevelt finally dismisses the concerns of his uniform commanders, and he signs the order. The gist of the order is, "We will go to North Africa." He signs it, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Commander in Chief, lest there be any doubt whence his authority derived. And so when we land in North Africa on November 8, 1942, we are not fighting the Germans. We're not fighting the Italians. Who are we fighting? We're fighting the French, our oldest friends. And that's because, in brief, when Germany invades France in the summer of 1940 and quickly overruns most of France, Hitler offers the French a deal with the devil. And the deal is this. We will keep the northern two-thirds of metropolitan France, including Paris, and we will give you the southern one-third with a new capital in the spa town of Vichy. And you can keep your overseas possessions. You can keep your colonies, particularly in North Africa, which is very important to the French. And the North African colonies include Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And the French, almost to a man, accept that deal There are a few renegades who refuse, like an obscure brigadier general named Charles de Gaulle, who instead flees to London. So when we arrive in France, and part of the deal includes extracting a pledge from the French that they will fight to repel any invader of North Africa, so when we invade North Africa, we fight the French. The French army fights pretty indifferently for several days. The French navy fights ferociously. One of the biggest battles of the Atlantic is off Casablanca. A thousand French soldiers die in one day, killed by us. So does the strategy make any sense? My basic belief is, first of all, historians love counterfactuals because you can never be wrong. I could say, no, it makes no sense, and I'd be right. I could say, it makes perfect sense, and I would be right. My feeling is that, in fact, what happened is what needed to happen. You could not cross the English Channel in 1943 as Marshall wanted to without risking an absolute catastrophe, without being bottled up as we were bottled up at Anzio and having the landing force in that narrow beachhead shelled incessantly day after day. And had that happened, and you had lost a number not only of men but of the most precious commodity other than men in the war, and that's landing craft then I think it would have set back the liberation of Europe by at least a year because I don't think it would have been mounted then in 1944. You're waiting until 1945. So my feeling is, having now looked at it for a long time, that it plays out as it needs to. Now, the problem is, and George Marshall saw this very clearly, once you commit yourself to a Mediterranean strategy, you're in the Mediterranean. And it makes sense then to go to Sicily and southern Italy, and it makes sense to fight your way up the boot for the entire war, because you're already there. And there are not enough ships, for example, after you finish in Tunisia in May of 1943, to move a million men back to England. England couldn't support them anyway. There were already a couple million Americans in a country the size of Oregon staging for Normandy. So you are committed to the Mediterranean at that point. My feeling is, ultimately, it's a, it's a defensible strategy even 70 years later and I think when you look at it walking a mile in their shoes you can understand why the president chose that. Thanks sir.
0: You speak not of politics in your speech. Um, I was wondering if the politics in your speech would um, if you would explain for me what President uh, Roosevelt was thinking when he sided with Winston Churchill?
2: When he, I'm sorry. S-
0: when he sided with Winston Churchill. What
2: was he thinking? You're the one who just got back from Normandy, right? You, you came here loaded for bear, right? He told me before he, I, he, he listed the five invasion beaches at Normandy and I knew I was in trouble. Well, what was president, the president thinking? And that's a really good question. It's hard to know. He's a very opaque guy. That means you can't see through him. One of his admirers describes Roosevelt as having a heavily forested interior. He doesn't confide in people. He doesn't write down what he's thinking. Um, And he's often cryptical in comments that he makes. Well, one of the things we know he was thinking is he's thinking, my best ally... ...in this global war is not the British, it's not the French, it's not any of the other countries that we're ultimately allied with. It's the Russians. The Russians, who have 26 million dead in World War II, and they are going to do most of the bleeding, dying, and killing for the Allied cause. They kill far more Germans than all the rest of the Allies put together... And Roosevelt knows that he has got to keep the Russians in the game. They have been on our side since the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941. And the worst thing that could happen in Roosevelt's calculation is for the Russians to make a separate peace with the Germans and to drop out of the war. And so one of the things he's got to do is to show the Russians that we're serious, that we're willing to do a little bleeding, dying, and killing. And so the quickest way he can do that in the liberation of Europe, he thinks, is the invasion of North Africa. He can launch that in November 1942. He cannot invade mainland Europe. He cannot invade France until the earliest, the late spring of 1943. So that's one of the main things that he's thinking about. He's also thinking politics. You're right. He's a master politician, he, keeps, he selects Dwight Eisenhower to be the supreme commander for the invasion because he says of Eisenhower, he's the best politician among the generals. That's not an insult from Franklin Roosevelt, and Eisenhower didn't take it as an insult. Roosevelt knows that at that point, the United States having been attacked by the Japanese in December 1941, the country is itching to get some revenge, and whether it's against the Japanese or the Germans, people don't really care. They're just ready to get into the war, and he has got to do it partly to keep, partly to get the country really in, involved in the war fully, and partly for political purposes. He's got an election coming up in November 1942. As it turns out, it happens after the invasion, I had the, election, the invasion happens after the election. And so it doesn't do him any good. These are congressional elections, not a presidential election. It doesn't, he doesn't get any points for it. Uh, but to his credit, he doesn't ask Marshall or his other senior commanders to accelerate the invasion so that it happens before the election, which would certainly help the Democrats on the Hill. That's a great question. Thanks. Over on this side, there in the back, right behind my friend Steve Luxemburg.
1: Steve um, I know that, um, at least in the movie Patton, which was, I liked a lot, that um, uh,
2: Eisenhower was supposed to try to keep the peace between Montgomery and Patton, and that's, he, was a, he was a great, uh, did a great job on that. But what do you consider, would you consider Patton to be one of the greatest generals in the war? How would you consider him in history as far as his, uh, his abilities? Well, he's sure fun to write about, isn't he? Um Patton, I think, is a great general. He is a great fighting general. He is born to lead other men in the dark of night, and you cannot ask more of a combat leader. Now, he's got some deficiencies as a human being and as a commander. On two successive Sundays in August of 1943, he loses control of himself completely and slaps two soldiers in two different hospitals, believing that they are malingering. They're not malingering, they're sick. One has malaria, the other has dysentery. One of them has been in a lot of combat. This is unpardonable, and he's lucky that he was not relieved and sent home. It came very close. Incidentally, that happened in August. The story did not break, and it broke in Washington, not in the Mediterranean, uh, uh, until November of 1943. So this is a problem. Now, he has several months because it costs him the opportunity to be the senior ground commander in Europe. He would probably, instead of Omar Bradley, have been the ultimately the uh, 12th Army Group commander. Instead, he commands an army, which is one level down, and he is subordinate to Bradley. And he's been Bradley's superior in uh, Sicily. When he's given an opportunity, first of all, he cleans up his act reasonably well. He behaves himself. He, he keeps control of himself. Uh, when given other opportunities to slap other soldiers, he doesn't. When we see the breakout from Normandy, which begins on July 25, 1944, and this force that has been bottled up since D-Day, really, finally gets some running room, And Patton's Third Army comes into being, and he kind of leads the breakout. He's pretty great. He is really—he's a driving force. He's unstoppable. He's still not without flaws. (coughs) Excuse me. They get into Brittany, and he doesn't see uh, that—he doesn't see right away that, in order to capture ports in Brittany, which is the whole reason for being in Brittany, he—they're going. West, Paris, and Berlin are East. It takes him several days, partly because he doesn't want to rock the boat. With Eisenhower again, he's already on thin ice. So he doesn't see that right away. But when he finally gets gone across France with Third Army, he's pretty terrific. He's at his best in the Battle of the Bulge. German surprise offensive, December 16, 1944. He and his senior intelligence officer, among the few who have suspicions that the Germans may have the capability to launch this really sweeping armored counterattack. And he is ready for it in the sense that he's done planning. And when he is asked, the attack doesn't fall on his third army there to the south, but when he's asked by Eisenhower two or three days into the attack to make a 90-degree turn with third army in the winter, in the Ardennes, he does it brilliantly. And so he is a large reason for uh, the, the, the German attack faltering. He helps to, to eventually drive them back. So, you know, I think with Patton, as probably with most generals, it's, it's a nuanced portrait, both of him personally and of him as a commander. The movie incident of the 1970 movie with George C. Scott is quite accurate despite the fact that the technical advisor is Omar Bradley. <laughs> the one thing about George Scott's portrait is Patton had a, a, a rather high squeaky voice. He's a big guy. He was 6'2 and really a strapping guy as Scott uh, suggests in the movie but he, has a, uh, he doesn't have George C. Scott's voice. So if you hear that, that's not Patton you're hearing. Is that right here? Excuse me, wait for the microphone, please. I can't hear you and neither can anybody else.
1: Is this okay? Yeah, a third time's
2: a charm. Thank you. Now that died for some reason. How long is naval warfare part of the war effort? Well, n- naval warfare. Naval warfare lasts until really the end of the war. Obviously, in the Pacific, it lasts until uh, the Japanese surrender virtually. It's vitally important because um, every bullet, every bean, every bomb you're moving across the Atlantic has to be brought across the Atlantic. and um, So the submarine threat is at its highest in the fall of 1942, the German submarine threat at the time that Operation Torch is launched in the invasion of of North Africa, you could make an argument that that is the most daring operation of the war for the Americans. And so uh, defeating the German submarine uh, threat persists really well into 1944 and really into 1945 because the Germans have a knack for cranking out new surprise weapons like the jet fighter plane and the V-1 flying bomb, and the V-2 ballistic missile, all these are new weapons that the Germans introduced late in the war, and one of the weapons they introduced is a new kind of submarine that can remain submerged much longer than the old diesel submarines and really is a potential threat. Now, there are too few of them. They're too badly made to have a real impact, but these submarines are off the coast of Britain uh, really until the Germans surrender in May, So naval warfare remains an important part of it. Now, all of the aircraft carriers, with only a couple of very modest exceptions, are in the Pacific. So naval warfare really is kind of old-fashioned fire-away Flanagans, like the Battle of Casablanca I talked about, with battleships and cruisers and destroyers and other surface ships firing back and forth at each other or firing ultimately at, say, German fortifications in France. So it's a very, very vital part of the war to the end. Over here. Yes, sir. Okay. Recently, I uh, was fortunate to read an autobiography by Charlie Chaplin in which he stated
1: that the Americans were dragging their feet and starting the Western Front.
2: Is there any validity to this? And he did best, all he could to encourage the Americans to do that. Is there any validity to that? Well, um, by dragging their feet, meaning... The um, population seemed to not even want to go to war, according to him. Well, this is true. Until December 7, 1941, there's a very strong isolationist sentiment in the country, not only on Capitol Hill, but in the population generally. And uh, it has taken all of Roosevelt's political skills and deafness and indirection and that heavily forested interior and all the rest of it to be able to slowly nudge the country toward the idea of possibly helping the other democracies and even countries that are not democracies like the Soviet Union through programs like Lend Lease, where our great industrial strength uh, is cranking out substantial munitions for the British uh, and for the Russians and for others. Now, all of that is something that is resisted by a large portion of the United States. And it's really not until Pearl Harbor that the country becomes rather unified and the isolationist strain falls away and you find very few people, some good-hearted pacifists, for sure, but it's a very small number uh, who resist the idea of getting into the war full-time, global war, total war, full-time. So, you know, I think Chaplin is right. Okay, right here, sir, right here. No. You got, there you go. Hang on just a second. An uprising in Grenoble. Yeah. Um, Well, what he asked was there was an uprising in Grenoble between the landings at Normandy and the landings in southern France. Ultimately, that Franco American force that I described coming through the beaches near Saint Tropez did go through. The Americans liberated uh, Grenoble. Um, There were uprisings in a number of uh, French cities. uprising being a very loose term. Uh, There were efforts by French towns and villages and so on to resist to one degree or another. Not many, because they had been under the jackboot of the German occupation for four years. The Germans were absolutely ruthless. In the town of Oradour, for example, which is uh, inland from Normandy and farther south, There were uh, a German SS officer was killed by partisans, uh, and the Germans reacted by utterly destroying the the town and murdering hundreds of people, women and children included, in the town. So these things happened in some towns. It was relatively minor. Uh, In Grenoble, uh, you know, I don't remember the particulars of it. It was not a substantial uprising. in in Grenoble uh, because uh, it couldn't have been that substantial because there weren't that many Germans in Grenoble. Uh, But once the landings began to take place on August fifteenth, 1944, the race up the Rhone River got to Grenoble much quicker than anyone, including the Americans, believed that it would, and so Grenoble was liberated pretty quickly. One last question. So right here. Hang on a second. Wait. Can you bring the microphone up here, or one of the microphones? said uh, I, I cite diaries and journals frequently, uh, but under penalty of uh, a threat of court martial, you could not keep them in a combat zone. Where did I get them? You think American soldiers paid attention to that? <laughs> you tell an American soldier he can't do something, and that's certainly an incentive for him to do it. Sometimes I think everyone kept a diary or a journal. Now, I know that's not true, but there were. Tens of thousands of them, of one sort or another. I mean, Patton kept a very, very detailed diary, and he would have pages sent home. Obviously, he's in a particular position where he can do that for safekeeping by his wife, Beatrice, in Washington. And there were many others who kept diaries. Why do they do that? They do it, uh, it's a way of venting. It's a way of, 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 of venting stress uh, it's a way of thinking through what you've seen. Uh, it was a different cultural age. People kept diaries much more then than they do now. I, I worry for future historians, uh, between email and the lack of diary keeping, I think it's gonna be a lot tougher to get inside the heads of soldiers fighting today, for example. So the diaries, yes, they would be confiscated. Where did they go? They went to the effects bureau in Kansas City. Now, I never they were destroyed. In theory, the diaries would be examined for whether or not they violated security. Now, they violated the rule against having diaries in combat zones in the first place, but in theory, there were staff officers going through the diaries, and if they were not uh, deemed to be a security threat, they supposedly were going to be sent back to the diarist. I don't think that happened very often. Uh, But the diaries that were kept tucked under your, your sleeping bag or in your rucksack or whatever, there are many of them. There are, uh, gosh, I'm tempted to say thousands, but it's probably just hundreds at, for example, the U.S. Army Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, not very far from here. That's where the Army's unofficial records are kept, and it's one of the great historical troves uh, in the country. Uh, There are many, many diaries there. The Navy uh, has diaries at the facility at the Navy Yard in Washington. The Marines uh, have diaries. Uh, And in some cases, the soldiers brought them home, and you can find them. Almost every state university has something. Uh, The 29th Infantry Division, which had been the National Guard from uh, Maryland and Virginia particularly, has an absolutely wonderful facility in the armory here. Uh, My friend Joe Balkoski, as the command historian, has made that into a terrific division facility, and so there are diaries or fragments of diaries in in places like that. There's always something new to learn about World War II. Thank you, sir. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.